0: Welcome back to Parashat Amor. My name is Ariel Ben-Lyman and we are talking about the seven festivals of the Lord. We've already discussed the Sabbath, we've discussed Passover, we've talked about Hamatzah, and we've talked about Omer Rishit. We are now poised to start looking at Shavuot or Pentecost. The themes surrounding Shavuot entail the giving of the Torah, the giving of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, as well as first fruits and ecclesiology. The Hebrew word for week is Shavua. Um, and its plural is Shavuot. Both of these words come from the root word for seven. Okay. Um, obviously, a cycle of seven is is um, recognized in Judaism as a week. Seven days equals one week. Thus, the term Shavua. Shavuot is the plural of week. Now, the festival known as Shavuot gains its name from the fact that it is a section of The counting of seven weeks of days, hence 49 days, is what Shavuot really means. And when God instructed Israel to count the Omer, of which, um, while I'm making this recording, we're in the middle of counting the Omer, then it would culminate on the 50th day after the counting of the 49. And uh, again... This yearly count is listed in the Torah as a mitzvah. It's a command from Hashem Himself. Now the name Pentecost, of which most Christians are familiar with, uh, comes from the Greek word Pentecoste. Um, and it means 50 days. "Penti" or Pentecoste. Uh, 50 days is the Torah instructed on Israel, the people of Israel, to add the final day after the seventh week. So count seven weeks of sevens, that's 49. And then on the 50th day, such and such is to happen. Now, historically, here's something that the uh, Christian Church may or may not be um, aware of. Historically, the rabbis figure the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai to have occurred on this very same day. That is, in the third month after Am israel came out of Egypt. Now, actually, in, in reality, um, the exact date of the familiar encounter, you know, the giving of the Torah, is not recorded for us in the Book of Exodus. That is to say, it doesn't tell us the exact date. However, the chronological evidence is convincing if you follow when God did tell them to come out of Egypt and the subsequent narrative between um, the exodus from Egypt and the giving of the Torah at Sinai. So the timing is is, um, is is very close. I mean, if the rabbis are off, then they're only off by a few days. We do know that um, the Torah, the very same teaching that we have today, that was inscribed upon the stone tablets that day. We do know that the Torah that was given is the Torah that we have today. That's my point. And so there's no speculation there. When the rabbis talk about the giving of the Torah, they're actually talking about the biblical event. We also know that this same Torah is to be inscribed upon our hearts as we serve Yeshua to the glory of Hashem the Father. Now, the question needs to be asked then, how do we get the Torah on our hearts? How do we put it there? I mean, we can't put it physically there. We're talking about death. We cannot write these physical words on our hearts. So when when the commandment is, is, is hinted at that the Torah should be upon our hearts, uh, a.k.a. the Shema, these words which I command you today shall be upon your heart. Um, um, what does the, uh, the Pasuk say? Um, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Now, loving God is walked out practically by placing the words of God on our hearts. Uh, These words which I am commanding you today shall be upon your heart. Obviously there is a link in the verse, in the Pasuk, between loving God with all your heart, and the words that I am commanding you today. Um, The words that God commands us are the words of the Torah. And yet, to put them on our hearts, we must love the Lord our God with all our hearts. And so, the Spirit of the Holy One is the person who makes real the fact that Yeshua the Messiah, in obedience to the Father, emptied himself on our behalf and became his sin, so that we might consequently become the righteousness of the Father. Okay, It is the Torah inscribed upon our hearts as we surrender and serve Yeshua. That's how it's done. Okay? So when God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, He's really hinting at the fact that embracing His Son Yeshua is the beginning of that genuine revelation. Thus, when Moshe writes, asher anuki hayom The words that I am commanding you today shall be upon your heart, those words are synonymous with the words of Yeshua. Because Yeshua is the living word. You see how that works? The word on our heart is Yeshua himself. And Yeshua will bring to our recollection the words that we place within our minds. I think it's important that the verse talks about that love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. So, um, let's keep reading in my commentary. In other words, Because the Ruach HaKodesh makes the effectual, sacrificial death of Messiah a living reality in our hearts, the consequence, or the results I should say, is that we are now free to walk in newness of life. Falling in love with God entails a new walk. A change of identity. A change in our spiritual makeup but it means a change in our behavior. okay? Pentecost is the down payment that God promised to give us through the prophet Joel. He promised Israel that he would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly how the Talmudine describe the events taking place on Shavuot. They say, this is the promise spoken about through Joel the prophet, that God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And indeed, the giving of the spirit is also the fulfillment of the promise that Yeshua said he would do. You remember, I think it's in John 17 where he said, you know what, I'm going to leave, but after I leave, I'm going to send you the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the Paralambano, the one who will come alongside of us and walk close with us in the absence of the Messiah walking with us himself. This act of faith on our part, placing our trust in Yeshua and receiving the Spirit into our lives, this act of faith on our part, brings about the inscription of the Torah upon our hearts. So what I'm doing is I'm drawing a correlation between the giving of the Torah at Sinai and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. The giving of the Torah at Sinai, according to the rabbis, took place on Shavuot. And we know for sure that the giving of the Spirit, at least to corporate Israel and the bringing in of the Gentiles in Acts chapter 2 also took place on Shavuot. So what we can do is we can bring the two events together and see that God is giving us His Spirit so that the Torah can be written upon our hearts. Now, to be sure... Just in case you think, well, Ariel, you're stretching things there. Where do you get scriptural warrant for saying that the Torah being written on our hearts is done by the Spirit? Well, the Torah it's itself says that Hashem does this in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and verse 27, as well as explicitly in Jeremiah 31:33. I might also add that Jeremiah is picked up again by the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 8 and in chapter 10, and it's the longest quote from the Tanakh. And it again explicitly states that God will write His laws on the inward parts, on our hearts. What laws is He talking about? He's talking about the Torah. We are now free to pursue the Torah of truth without any fear of condemnation. Remember Romans 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation. If you are in Messiah, you can pursue the Torah, and you can do it because you are empowered by the Spirit to do it. You're not going to be walking out the Torah in your own power. Don't fool yourself. God gave you the Spirit so that you could walk a sanctified life, so that you can walk pleasing to God. Obedience is pleasing to God. Obedience never brings condemnation. Only legalism brings condemnation. Disobedience warrants God's punishment, but obedience doesn't bring condemnation. Obedience is what we're called to do, and the Spirit is given to us freely so that we can indeed do it. This new identity in Messiah is in fact... The righteous relationship that our Heavenly Abba intended for us all along. He saved us so that He can sanctify us and fill us with His Spirit. The details surrounding that eventful Shavuot in Yerushalayim now serve to remind us of this present reality. Isn't that wonderful? Let's keep reading. On the top of page 8, we begin a new paragraph entitled Rosh Hashanah Yom P'la, New Year Feast of Trumpets ecclesiology. Now with the coming of the fall part of the year comes the final series of festivals known as um, the Festivals of the Lord and they um, detail the theme passage that I captured for us in the festivals studies verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus chapter 23, really. In rabbinic thinking, these last festivals of the year, the ones, the fall festivals, are known as the seasons of tshuva, seasons of repentance, the season of our turning around. Tshuva, or teshuva, as it's pronounced in other circles. Um, to return back to God is what tshuva in, entails. Tshuva is a 180 to return from error back to the truth. It presumes the notion that the um, Ptolemy was, al- was already walking uh, the Derech Emet, the way of truth, and he got off the path and did a 180 degree turn and got oriented in the wrong direction. Thus, he's now walking away from Emet, away from truth, and Teshuvah or Tshuva, the root word is Shuv, which means to turn, um, entails turning away from error and back to truth. The season of our repentance is the fall festivals. The biblical name for this festival, uh, Rosh Hashanah, uh, Rosh Hashanah is well, it's, it's how you're probably used to hearing it, Rosh Hashanah. The biblical term is Yom Troa. Now, um, Yom Troa means the day of the awakening trumpet blast. Yom, day, Troa, awakening trumpet blast. Your, your calendar most definitely probably calls this Rosh Hashanah. Okay. The name literally means head of the year, Rosh Hashanah from the Hebrew words rosh, meaning head, or beginning, and the shana, meaning year. Now, it gained this title when the rabbis created the civil calendar to be used by all Jews living in the land of Israel, and it eventually became the standard for all Jews everywhere. A religious calendar, if you'll recall, was already in effect when this change took place. And rather than replace the religious one, which, of course, the rabbis have no authority to do, the rabbis simply adjusted it, making the beginning of the month tishrei instead of Nissan. Now again, Nissan is the beginning of the religious year, and Tishrei is the beginning of the civil year. So we really find no conflict. Israel actually has um, several new years. There's like the new year of trees, the new year of civil, um, uh, of uh, civil responsibilities, and then there's a, the new religious year. Okay, but what I want to um, inform our listeners today, in, and our readers of course, is that Yom Truah is a call to return to holiness. There is this assumption that through the long summer months after Shavuot, that we have once again strayed from our holy God. And you know what? God is not um, surprised to find us straying because all we like sheep have gone our own way. That's what the Pasik tells me. We do stray. And so it's wonderful that God in His divine foreknowledge and in His providence already steps into a place where we can begin to return to Him. Our God is in the business of calling men back to Himself. And in order to get man to realize his fallen spiritual state, God sometimes needs to give us reminders. You know what I mean? Because we are prone to forget. So, the Torah says of itself, speaking of one of these um, reminders, in Psalm 19, verse 11, that by its words, speaking of the Torah, by its words... Quote, your servant is warned, end quote. Now, if you're fond of questioning or dialoguing with the text, you're supposed to ask yourself this next question. Warned of what? Well, of the impending doom that is to befall all of the evil of mankind and the deeds that he does. That's what the warning of Yom Thru'ah is trying to tell us. The awakening trumpet blast is to awaken the sleeping, slumbering man. Awaken, O oh slumber, Why? Because the king is at the doors. He's returning. And guess what? His reward is in his hand. And you do not want to be found sleeping when the king returns. Within this warning, by the way, this warning of the impending doom that is to befall all the evil, within this warning is a message of mercy. That's the whole point. Repent! Like John the Baptist told everyone, repent! Repent, for the time is at hand. The king is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Turn to Hashem with your whole heart. Cry out for His mercy. Beg for His forgiveness in pardoning your sin. And guess what? He is a merciful God, and you can receive His atonement if you will surrender to His mercy. Okay? Okay? Let's continue now down on the middle of page 8 with the festival known as Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Of course, the themes surrounding Yom Kippur are atonement, forgiveness, and blood sacrifices. Now, with the arrival of Yom Kippur comes a central aspect of our relationship with our Holy God, and that central aspect is atonement. God has uh, uh, designed atonement to be the device. That allows us to approach God and allows God to approach us. Why is atonement so important to Hashem? You might ask. Well, uh, and this is just somewhat speculation, but it's based on Scripture. Apparently, ever since the incident in the Garden of Eden, we all know that mankind has carried within himself the sinful propensity of that first act of disobedience. In other words, we're stained with sin from the word go, from the from the from the womb. We're stained with sin. And uh, consequently, the sinful, the sinful results of uh, the first disobedient act by our first parents um, has stained the entire human race. Our sin nature is in direct conflict with the holy nature of Hashem. And as a result, we humans cannot fathom approaching Him, a holy God, without first making some, stored, some sort of restitution, uh, something that will satisfy Hashem's righteous requirement. Um, to put it bluntly, um, sin cannot exist in his sight, and so his nature demands that there be an atonement for sin it 's a very important uh, feature of um, a relationship with God. Now, what ends up happening, however, is we used to have animal sacrifices which would allow us to approach god 's holy sanctuary. We no longer have a sa- i 'm sorry we used to have a temple um, and we had sacrifices, and we no longer have sacrifices, and we no longer have a temple. So, um, for many of us, we scratch our heads and wonder why did God set up the elaborate system of animal sacrifices years ago, only to have the temple be destroyed and as of yet has not been rebuilt. Uh, and we wonder you know, if, if God could have been um, approached for so long, for these last 2,000 years without a temple, um, then what's the big deal? Why did we need the temple in the first place the first time? Well, In light of this question, in an attempt to explain um, the matter, or to continue to explain the matter, we Bible students in the 21st century need to understand the plans and the purposes of Hashem as expressed in the whole of the Torah. Now, from our vantage point, where we're at now, looking backwards in time, and using 21st century hindsight, of course, it makes perfect sense to send the Messiah to atone for our sinful nature. Because once we have embraced Yeshua and our minds have been uh, renewed um, by his atoning work, well, then we can look back into the pages of the Tanakh, and we can understand how that all of these things pointed towards Yeshua. And yet, we can't fully understand what part they played as the people were um, participating in the festivals that we read about. And so, again, in our hindsight, we look back and, we'll, and we say, okay, um, Yeshua is a perfect sacrifice. Of course, he's the only one that could atone For a sin of a man. After all, if God left things in the hands of mankind, if God said, alright, you guys figure it out. You guys come up with your own device or your own way of fixing the problem that you're in. Then, um, logically, each individual man would have to atone for his own personal sins. And, uh, of course, we know how ridiculous that is because man cannot atone for sin with sin. We cannot bring a sin sacrifice to atone for sin. It doesn't work that way. Only... A sinless transaction can atone for sin. Only a perfect animal, back at least the way it's prescribed in the Tanakh, could atone for the sins of an individual. Consequently, only a sinless man, the man Yeshua, um, can be a substitution for the sinful man, of course, Adam. So, if each person had to pay for his own sins, then each person would eventually have to die for such a payment. But again, it's ridiculous because it would be the last payment that we would ever make if such a payment could be made. God, of course, would not accept it, but since I'm speaking hypothetically, if God said, alright, fine, you want to atone for your sin? Bring your own life. Well, because it's life for life, right? If that were the case, then uh, that would be the last sin I would ever commit, and it would be the last sin that I would atone for But we don't need to speculate because the Torah gives us the solution to the dilemma facing every every human today, facing all of humankind. And the solution is, of course, found in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12. Quote, here's how it works it was through one individual that sin entered into the world, and through sin, death. And in this way, death passed through to the whole human race inasmuch as everyone sinned. Um. Actually, that's not the solution just yet. That's part of the problem. Uh, The problem is is that um, death passes to all of us because of our link to Adam. The solution is found in the book of Romans, but we'll we'll look at it later on. Uh, In fact, we'll look at it um, on page 10, and we're going to look at it from the book of Hebrews. But first, let's talk about the problem. With the entrance of sin came the punishment for sin, which is death. God promised that the day that you eat of it, you will die. We disobey God. Therefore, since we sinned, the wage that we earn is death. Now, we can see that Hashem is perfectly righteous when He says that the wages for our sin is death. Why? Because every man deserves to die. Because every man sins. However, and we know this, but it's worth studying anyway, here's where the mercy of Hashem comes in. He... Hashem has lovingly provided a means by which mankind can be redeemed. And in the period of the Tanakh, keep in mind, when man wanted to approach Hashem, man had to realize that his sin stained the sanctuary of God. As man approached a holy God, man is the one with the problem. Therefore, God offers a solution. And in the period of the Tanakh, the sacrificial system was the solution to the sin of the flesh. Even though it only served to cleanse the flesh, it was authentically God's solution. We must remind ourselves that no Jew living within the community in that time period was able to circumvent this system and remain officially within the community. You must bring sacrifices if you're going to approach God's holy altar because you are stained with sin, and your sin stains God's holy things. God's holy things cannot remain dirty or polluted. Therefore, the animal sacrifices wiped clean the holy things that were stained by man's sin. So, the question that we posed above as to... um, what should we do now that we are in a predicament? Um, if we take Hashem seriously all right, to help us get out of the predicament, then we will accept His provision no matter what means or how inadequate that provision may seem. So in the period of the knock, we cry out, God, I need you. God, I want you. I want to relate to you. God says, come close to me, draw close to me. But how do I draw close, I ask? God says, I'm glad you asked. The way you draw close is to bring an animal sacrifice in which the blood of the animal will wipe clean the sin that stains my holy place, the place where I've chosen to um, concentrate my glory. So if we take Hashem seriously, if we really believe that He can and does want to draw near to us, then we will accept His provision. We will not scratch our head, stomp our feet, raise our fists... And, and, and cry out and say, you know what? I just want to draw close to you. What's with all the animals? I don't need any animals, God. I just want to draw close to you. We've got to play by God's rules is what I'm trying to get at. All right. It's our first lesson in what I call Torah logic. The, lo- the Torah has a built-in logic, in- uh, a logic that's built into it. And the logic is God's logic. If we want to play by the game, if we want to play the game, we have to play by God's rules, if I could use that terminology and not uh, get in trouble for saying so. This, however, now that we notice that um, the sacrifices were the way in which to draw near... Of course, I'm playing with the Hebrew words korban and karav. This brings us to the current situation facing every man and woman and child, Jew or non-Jew, living today. And here's the situation. Since the sacrificial system used in the Tzernach did not bring the participant to the goal of attaining positional righteousness, that is to say, salvation... What was his means of attaining positional righteousness both back then, and what is his means of gaining such atonement today? That's a question that I posed in my commentary, my full-length commentary, to um Mot a few weeks ago, of which some of this information is, is being drawn from. Um... The reason the question needs to be posed is because in the time period of the Tanakh, perhaps an individual did not understand how they were to draw near to God in a positional slash forensic sense. Today I might also add that many people are confused as to what God requires of a man in order to be counted positionally righteous by God. Well, the modern rabbis would have us to believe that the three ways by which we would appease Hashem, now I'm not talking about salvation, I'm just talking about appeasement, get God's attention, and, and at least earn God's favor. They would have us to believe that it's the three T's of the Hebrew. We have Teshuvah, we have Tefilah, and we have Tzedakah, uh, translated as repentance, prayer and righteous acts, respectively. Now, to be sure, all of the principles that I just named, repentance, prayer, and righteous acts, or good deeds, um, all of these are found in the teachings of the Torah. And in each and every one of them has valid merit. I'm not trying to slam these concepts. I mean, for instance, our God is highly interested in our repentance from sin, our teshuvah, our returning from sin and turning back to God. Oh yes, God is very interested in teshuvah, and He's very supported uh, support of, of a prayer time. Uh, to be sure, set time prayers, pr- praying from the Siddur, is a wonderful way to, um, how should I put it, um, connect to the absence of the animal sacrifices. Because the uh, the Korbanot sacrifices were presented at set times um, during the time period when they were uh, enacted. Um, were, d- during the time period when the temple and the tabernacle stood, we had the um, the morning Uh, sacrifice, and then the afternoon sacrifice. And there were prayers structured around these times when the priests would offer such sacrifices. So prayer times, set time prayers, I'm in favor of those. Those are great. If you're not doing set time prayers, if you don't pray shacharit prayer, or mincha prayer, or ma'ayu prayer, or if you don't have a a prayer book, um, I recommend getting one, but don't beat yourself up over the issue. Press in as... um, as, as you're allowed to, or as your community is encouraging you to. Um, in, in other words, it works for some and it doesn't work for others. I'm not going to be dogmatic either way. That, I'll just leave it at that. And again, finally, um, of those three, we got repentance, we got prayers, and as far as righteous acts, He, our God, is very enthusiastic of our righteous acts, and everyone agrees. Uh, anything done for the sake of Hashem, Kiddush Hashem, done in His name, is uh, is obviously going to get God's approval. However, as far as gaining God's um, positional. Stamp of righteousness being approved or being merited to our lives, what does the Torah say? Does it say that righteous i'm sorry does it say that righteous acts prayer and repentance make atonement for us? Is that what it says i don't see that that's what it says. if we turn to leviticus seventeen eleven we're going to find out that there's one ingredient that makes atonement and let's read it. Quote, for the life of the creature is in the blood. I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives I'm sorry, for yourselves, for it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life. Quote. Now again this passage is taken from a subsection that's detailing some some light um kosher issues, some dietary issues, and God is basically saying Um, don't ingest blood because blood is used in atonement rites, therefore don't ingest blood. That is really the gist of the passage. However, because God mentions that the blood is there to give atonement, we cannot ignore the uh, details of what the passage is also teaching us. There is a teaching within a teaching. And the greater context, of course, is don't eat blood. But the minor context of the passage should be understood that we cannot eat blood because it is used in atonement rites and therefore that's I wanted to bring that verse out because it is the blood that God required to be dashed upon the altar it was not our prayers that were to be dashed upon the altar it was not repentance that was to be dashed upon the altar and you, and you get my point okay according to the book of hebrews the sacrifices of david's day Remember, we're, we're, if we want to pick and single out someone who lived closer to when um, they were able to bring sacrifices, I, I like to use David because he is a man of whom it was spoken of as a man after God's own heart. And obviously we um, we believe and affirm that David was a Messianic Jew, if I could import that term back into the text uh, safely, use it anachronistically. David placed his faith in the Messiah. Um, According to the book of Hebrews the sacrifices of David's day could cleanse the flesh but not the conscience that is to say I understand Hebrews to be teaching that only the eternal blood of a sinless sacrifice can regenerate the mind of an individual which is not a bad thing that the that the um that the blood of bulls and goats focused on the eternal by comparison they did blood of bulls and goats cleanses the flesh blood of the sinless sacrifice Yeshua who was prophesied In the Torah, uh, to come one day, of which, of course, David could read, this individual uh, was the one who would cleanse the inner part of a man, the conscience, and eventually the heart, circumcise the heart. And so I understand that uh, it's inner and outer working together, and I think that is the optimal way to have uh, understood the sacrifices. Let's read that quote from Hebrews, because it's such a great quote. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's Hebrews chapter nine verses thirteen and fourteen, rendered from the KJV. It's a great verse because the writer understands the relationship of the animals in comparison to the sacrifice of Yeshua. And the writer of the Hebrews, I can promise you, did not see any um, dichotomy between the two systems. Unfortunately, that is Christian baggage, and I'm not ashamed to use uh, that charge. It is Christian baggage um, to, to, to imagine that the animal sacrifice competed with Yeshua, and now that we no longer have a temple, uh, we, we we have Yeshua, and it's because the animals serve their time, and therefore, um, now that Yeshua has come, the animals had to give way. That's an incorrect way to view the animals, and it's an incorrect way to view Yeshua. The writer of Hebrews makes his point more explicit in this additional passage, and then I'm going to elaborate on this notion of animals versus Yeshua. Okay, Let's read another quote, this time from chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, out of the New International Version. Quote, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, the writer goes on to say, would they not have stopped being offered? for the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Quote. Now, again, the only way to fully understand the verse, at least that last clause where it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, we must understand that the writers referring to the impossibility of the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins on the inside positional sins or forensic sins, sins of the conscience, sins of the mind, sins of the heart, sins of the soul, if you want to throw that word in there. It's impossible for the the mortal blood, as Pastor Mark would say, to cleanse the immortal spirit of a man. The only way um, the immortal soul of a man um, could reach cleansing or reach the goal was for um, the man to place his trust in the perfect sacrifice who was to come, namely Yeshua. However, that does not mean that the animals were defective. God did not design animal sacrifices to cleanse the inner part of a man. God designed the sacrifices to atone for the sins of the flesh of a man. Read the verse again. The, um, uh, in fact, read uh, the the previous verse that I just uh, quoted, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer did what? Sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. Oh yes, the verse tells us that the animal sacrifices did their job; they worked, provided the person bringing them had a penitent heart and faith in God to begin with, and that's um, something that we discussed in Parshat Acharei Mot. Now, the Old Testament saints—what I'm trying to get you, what, my audience, to hear today—the Old Testament saints were not saved. by a different system than the one in which we rely on. And of course the one in which we rely on today naturally is Yeshua the Messiah. We cannot teach our people, you leaders, listen up, you pastors, you people in seminary, uh, you Bible teachers, Sunday school teachers, Sabbath school teachers, rabbis, etc. We cannot be teaching our people that the blood of the bulls and goats saved the individual then, but yet Yeshua saves us today. It's completely inaccurate. It's unfounded. The Torah does not warrant that view. It's an inaccurate view. The Old Testament saints were not saved by a different system. In fact, if they were, then this would suggest that there really were two separate ways unto righteousness. And therefore, Yeshua's statement where he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father but by me, would be a false statement because Yeshua would have to have remembered that blood of bulls and goats could bring an individual to the Father, but now that Jesus has come, now that, namely Himself, now that He has arrived, He is the one that offers that um, that acceptance on 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 God's part. But we know that that's not true. Tim Hegg's conclusion is fitting for our study here. Um, this is taken, if you'll see the footnote down there at the bottom, from the meaning of kafar at TorahResource.com. You can just click on the link in my uh, footnote; and it'll take you straight to Hegg's uh, article. But let's pull a quote. The older idea that atonement was only a temporary fix for sins uh, for those who lived in the time before the coming of the Messiah must be abandoned. The idea of atonement as portrayed in the scriptures encompasses both a temporal aspect as well as an eternal one. Quote. Um, let me just elaborate on what Tim Higgs stated there in my own commentary to be sure. Again, Yeshua himself stated emphatically that he was the way and that no man can come into the Father except through him Yeshua understands that the animal sacrifices cleansed in a temporary manner that is to say they brought relief to the flesh stained with sin and in a sense they allowed the worshiper to approach God's sanctuary without being struck dead because of his sins the sacrifices and look at my quote right there at the bottom of page 10 the sacrifices performed with a genuine heart of repentance afforded real-life forgiveness but only to the purification of the flesh. However, the mortal blood of the animals in and of themselves and by themselves could not even take away sin. In other words, um, repentance was a necessary ingredient. Only the eternal blood of the perfect sacrifice, to which the animals pointed, by the way, could purify both flesh and soul. So we see that the animal sacrifices gained their legitimacy by the heavenly sacrifice that God recognized but even then, they only went so far. They could not save you. They could not purify you on the inside. They only allowed you to approach the sanctuary and to um, walk away in a state of, of, of tahor, of clean. So, thus you could say that the sacrifices allowed the sin of the individual to move, as it were, from the individual to God's mercy seat, where the blood was—I'm uh, sorry—to the set, to the altar, to the mizbech, where the uh, um, where the uh, blood was dashed, and that's why I say that you could say that the animals moved, as it were, the sin from the body of the person to the mercy seat. When I say when I use the word "move," there I'm speaking of substitutionary language. Um, the sinner, the person bringing the sacrifice, is deemed righteous in a sense by God, and the animal, in a sense, takes his place. Thus, the animal dies; the human lives. That's very easily uh, deduced from reading the scripture. We all know that. We, we hear that in our Sunday school lessons. Um, God would, in fact, grant genuine atonement, washing of the sins of the flesh, because of the reality of the heavenly altar. The earthly altar was a replica of the heavenly altar. Remember, God instructed Moshe to, to construct the earthly tabernacle as a pattern of what he had already seen in the heavenlies. Viz, the earthly tabernacle was genuine. It was a copy, but it was a genuine copy. God had instructed Moshe to make it, and it was a genuine replication. God authorized the construction of the tabernacle, and God sanctified the tabernacle once it was constructed. God got approved of it, is what I'm trying to say. It was not an illegitimate construction on the part of just men. The Jewish people weren't just clever enough to put together something and expect God to move in. God moved in because God approved of the building of it, God approved of the construction, and God approved of the utilization of it. We need to remind ourselves that the, 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 the sacrificial system functioned correctly because it's also God's authentic system. Alternately, the blood of the animals, once they were brought to God's sanctuary, they washed or they wiped clean the holy place where God manifestly dwelt. Now we know God did not really dwell there. What he did is he concentrated his glory in such a way as for man to relate to God on this level. God's presence, his Shekhinah, his kavod, his glory, his his manifest presence, was concentrated in this area for a brief moment in history. Um, and this was where God said, if you want to meet with me in this location and in this fashion, you must bring a, a blood of animals, the objective faith of the individual still remained dependent upon God's promised word to come, namely Yeshua himself. They placed their faith in the obedience that God expected of them, but at the same time their the object of their faith was centered squarely on the one that that, that, that God had promised that He would send among them, and there are numerous places in the Torah and indeed the Tanakh as well, where the promised one was uh, spoken about. So we don't even need to talk about that. Obedience on the part of the worshiper was demonstrated by adherence to explicit Torah commands where sacrifices were concerned. My point in bringing that statement up is this. The worshiper was required to be obedient to God's commandment. We cannot allow disobedience... Um, to coexist in a genuine relationship with God. point blank or I'm sorry point point uh, let me just say it plainly God does not reward disobedience okay, okay? he does not reward wickedness disobedience is uh, is either what a lack of faith it's fear it's it's rebellion it's insubordination it's a whole host of things that God does not reward God rewards obedience. He says it over and over again Israel walk in my ways Walk in my statutes, be faithful to my covenant, and I'll bless you. But if you disobey, if you willfully walk away from my ways, I'll not bless you. I will allow the curses to to, to ina- be enacted in your life. You'll be under the law. You'll be underneath the curses. And so God rewards obedience. And if God requires animal sacrifices, then that is a part of obedience. If we fail to bring the animal when God requires the animal, then we're walking in disobedience and God's not going to reward that. What is more, the salvation of the eternal soul of an individual, both then and today, was always dependent upon a circumcised heart. Circumcision of the heart is a feature that is found in the Torah, people. I, I hear this sometimes and I cringe both in, in Christian circles and in not, and a few Jewish circles as well. But some people try to imagine that circumcision of the heart is a New Testament feature. No, it's not. It is found squarely within the Torah. God required a circumcised heart back then. He was not merely interested in, in routinely bringing animals without any type of faith whatsoever. God could see the heart of every single person who brought a sacrifice near to his temple. And guess what? If their heart wasn't circumcised, then then ultimately that person was um, going to fall out of covenant with God or they would just die in the wilderness with no hope of, of, um, how do we say, an inheritance in the age to come. God was in it for the long haul. God wanted each and every person to graduate or matriculate to genuine faith in him. But but sadly, God could see into the heart. And he realized over and over that the people were bringing the sacrifices, and yet their hearts were cold. Their hearts were turned far from him. And so he had to send prophet after prophet to warn his people, you know what, keep, just keep your sacrifices. Because you know what, I can see your hearts, and you're not, your hearts aren't in the matter. And so it's a very uh, strong lesson for us today. Today it's no different. God requires God requires the whole man. God requires obedience. God requires faith. God requires a circumcised heart. And if we want to live in his sight, if we want to have genuine and lasting covenant membership with our Heavenly Father, then faith is the primary ingredient. Okay? Faith, and the grace is afforded to us to, to, to have faith. We don't conjure faith up from within ourselves. We fall on God's mercy and His grace and allow Him to give us the faith that we need to, in fact, interact with Him. Okay?